You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We've come to the point in the Gospel of Mark where the behavior of Jesus' disciples would be comical if it weren't so tragic. These guys are fearful. They are consumed with ambition. They are argumentative. They are jealous. In the passage just before this, they found themselves unable to cast out a demon and found themselves arguing with the crowds. Now that outfighting has become infighting because on the way, they're arguing with each other about who will be the greatest. Their attitude toward Jesus is not one of humble surrender. Instead, what we'll see as this text proceeds is that they see Jesus as someone they can use to advance themselves into positions of influence. That's what's behind their conflict on the road that they didn't want to tell Jesus about. And Jesus takes the opportunity to instruct them about the nature of greatness and success and leadership in the kingdom of God. The thing that they've got to learn is something that will find its way, that needs to find its way into our lives as well. And that thing is that greatness in the kingdom is measured by humility, not ambition. Jesus wants his followers to understand that in his kingdom, greatness is measured by humility, not ambition. Shows up in this text, first and foremost, in the life of Jesus. Jesus embodies this principle. Humility, an attitude that does not seek to exalt oneself an attitude that does not that 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 see, doesn't make more of oneself than one should. And Jesus, the one who has every right to all authority and all prominence and all prestige and all glory and all honor, instead says that he is the one who will be betrayed into human hands, human hands that he created, human hands over which he has authority. He will betray be betrayed into human hands. This is verse 31, and they will kill him. The one who gives life will sacrifice his life. And then after three days, after being killed, he will rise again. So here's Jesus talking about the cross, talking about his death and resurrection. Even though he is the embodiment of the Creator, the one who is life, the one who gives life, he will yield his life. Even the one in whom there is no greater authority, no greater status. Like in the ancient world, people were consumed with their status. We still are too. It looks a little bit different, but there are some parallels. But in the ancient world, there was, in the top echelon of society, there was kind of this ladder of success. 
a ladder of honor and you start here and you get this office and you get some more honor and then you slide over and you do a year in that appointment. You get to climb the ladder a little bit more and you kind of work your way up. Most of the average people didn't have the opportunity to even get on that ladder, but they were still kind of you know, jockeying for position and honor against over against people. That's what happens with Jesus and the Pharisees when they come to test him with the trick question we'll talk about in a few minutes. They are challenging his honor. They're trying to get one over on him. So the world is filled in Jesus' day with people who jockey for position and are just marked by this unchecked ambition. I'm going to get what I want and I don't care who I have to step on to get it. And Jesus' disciples are embodying that. And Jesus offers a very different picture. I can have what I want if I want it, Jesus says, right? 10,000 angels to come and deal with His opponents and rescue Him from the cross. He could call them down. He doesn't appeal to his power or his status or his deity. Instead, he sacrifices himself. Right? Because greatness in the kingdom is measured by humility, not ambition. Jesus embodies the thing that he wants his disciples to experience. And this is why he gave himself. So that we could be forgiven and reconciled. And the kind of stuff that is emerging in this passage, we're going to get into in detail in just a minute, so that he could deal with that in all of us. All the kind of self-oriented, I'm going to get my way, that attitude that uses other people, vulnerable people, for our own advantage, Jesus has got to deal with that. Because he's not that kind of Savior. He's not that kind of God. He's not that kind of Messiah. Now, the disciples still don't understand him. This has come up several times in our study of Mark. We're working all the way through the Gospel of Mark. And one of the major themes the last couple of chapters has been, what does it mean to be the Messiah? One of the major questions. And uh, we know that the Gospel is about Jesus coming, dying, and rising. The disciples apparently haven't gotten the memo yet. They don't get that. The reason is because they still see Messiah as more of a political revolutionary than as a crucified Savior. In the ancient world, Messiah is the guy who marches into Jerusalem, takes it to the Romans, kills them or runs them out of town, and gets the crown. That's why the disciples are arguing about who is greatest. right? Because they are on board in this mission because they think Jesus is going to be the next king of the Jews. And when he sits on his throne and puts that crown on his head, they want the top jobs. They're arguing about who's greatest. Because they are consumed with unchecked ambition. And they don't mind even if they have to get one over on each other. They're, forget outsiders. They're willing to get one over on their friends if it means getting a better position in the cabinet in the new administration. That's what they're arguing about. Who's going to be the greatest when Jesus, the Messiah, comes into his authority? Run the bad guys out, we'll take the top jobs, and everybody will come to us to get to him, and we'll have all the power. And Jesus has got to, like, that is insidious and dangerous, and he's got to deal with it before these guys can be turned loose on the world to plant churches and extend the kingdom. Right? That's what he's got to deal with. They are marked by this unchecked ambition 
where they can ride Jesus' coattails straight to the top, and he'll sit on the throne, and they'll run all his business and power and authority. So he pulls them together. He tells them, whoever wants to be first, because that's what they want, top dogs in the new administration, whoever wants to be first, Jesus says, this is verse 35 if you're reading along, maybe you want to underline this, it's a good thing to remember. Whoever wants to be first must be last, last of all, and servant of all. And Jesus is trying to teach them that his way of doing the kingdom of God, his way of doing the Messiah, the job, the vocation of Messiah, isn't marked by this sort of unchecked, reckless agenda of ambition. I'm going to get that throne no matter what. His approach is marked by service, self-sacrifice, self-giving love, humility. This is why Paul can say of Jesus in Philippians 2, though he embodied the form of God, he humbled himself and took up the role of a servant, the form of a servant, and gave his life in obedience to the Father, not just to death, but death on the cross. Jesus embodies this servitude, this humility, this sacrifice of agenda, this sacrifice of this unchecked ambition to embody the humility of a servant. And he, he has the top place in the kingdom because he is the servant of all of us. He serves us by shedding his blood for us. He serves us by allowing his body to be broken for us. He serves us by giving His Spirit to us. He serves us by reconciling us to God the Father. These are the ways that He cares for us, ministers to us, and serves us. He is patient with us. He is kind to us. He is compassionate to us. He welcomes us, even though we have nothing to offer Him. Because greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by humility not ambition. So the attitude that Jesus is going after in the disciples shows up multiple times in this passage. We've got a, kind of a big chunk so that we can see kind of the, the repetition of this one attitude that shows up multiple times and the contrasting appropriate response. We'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. So this attitude, this unchecked ambition that shows up again and again, that takes advantage of other people, regardless, you know, just so you can get what you want, shows up in their argument about who's the greatest. It also shows up in their apparent thinking that they have a monopoly on ministry in Jesus' name. Because what happens, and it's amazing, Jesus can say, hey, You've got to be a servant to all. And the next thing that happens, John pipes up and says, Hey, teacher. So we were out the other day and uh, walking along the road, and there's this guy, and there's this person who's possessed by a demon. And the guy is casting the demon out of the person possessed by the demon in your name. Guess what we did? We stopped him. Told him to quit. Why? 
He didn't go to our church. Obviously, he's not a part of our group. We have a monopoly on ministry in your name. We don't know who this guy... He's not from around here. We don't know him. We made him stop. Imagine, imagine how the person who was possessed by the demon felt when Jesus' disciples showed up and put a stop to his restoration. Imagine how Satan felt. <laughs> Three cheers for these guys, right? You don't want the devil as your cheerleader. Let's just go ahead and get that on the table. But that's what's going on here, isn't it? Right? These guys see ministry, like good things are happening. The Baptists are doing good things, right? Somebody in another denomination that's not a part of our group is really helping people in Jesus' name and doing compassion and doing the gospel. And Jesus is critiquing how the disciples are jealous right? because something's happening that's good that they're not in control of. And it reveals this ambition that they have we don't want that guy getting in on what, our power. We don't want that guy getting a share in our authority. There's only so much to go around. Who is he? He's not a part of our group. Stop it. No matter who gets hurt, no matter who, gets, no matter who loses, yes, that person may still be possessed by a demon, but we maintain control. It's ridiculous, isn't it? They have lost their mind. They are not thinking Jesus' thoughts. They are not following in his footsteps. They're not yielding themselves to him. And Jesus rebukes them, doesn't he? He says, guys, if he's ministering in my name, he's not going to be speaking badly. He's not going to be opposing me in the next breath. The ministry he wants the disciples to learn, is bigger than them. The kingdom is not limited to these 12 guys. They're part of a bigger thing. But their attitude says, if you don't do it our way, you don't do it at all. And that's the attitude that we've got to let Jesus open our eyes to. It's an attitude that infects a lot of churches. got all the old church conflict cliches, right? Color of the carpet kinds of things. I'm going to get my way. I call the shots. I made the donation. I'm not going to let them have their way. I have been in church meetings where one person objected to new people coming because they didn't want to share the decision-making authority. We saw somebody acting in your name. We made them stop. You don't get a say-so in here. We call the shots. That unchecked ambition, that territorial attitude, this is our gig. We've never done it another way. We only do it the way we want to. And we make jokes about it, right? The whole, like... <laughs> Last words of a dying church. We've never done it that way before. All the old cliche, cliches. Right? We get our territory and we hang on to it and we care more about our agenda and our preferences than we do the gospel. And we care more about our agenda than we do people experiencing healing and wholeness. That's the issue. John cares more about his preferences and his agenda and his ambition than somebody else being healed. 
And Jesus says, no. 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 Empower the ministry. Delegate the ministry. Encourage the ministry. Go up and pray with the guy. You're on the same team because you are all supposed to be following me. Kingdom greatness is measured by humility, not ambition. It takes some humility to go up to somebody who's not a part of the group and say, you know what? Thanks for your ministry. We are better because of what you do. It takes some humility to do that, doesn't it? Same attitude or similar attitude shows up in the teaching about divorce. The Pharisees come to Jesus and something is askance and your first clue is that they are coming to test him. Right? So in the ancient world, you would have these kind of, they're called honor challenges. There's only so much honor to go around. And uh, if you could have this public confrontation with somebody and stump them, they lose honor, you gain it. So the Pharisees are not happy with Jesus because he ain't playing their politics. He's not deferring to them. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors saying, here's where the kingdom is, and the Pharisees who think, hey, we're supposed to be the kingdom people. You should be running with us. They don't appreciate that. So they want to trap Jesus, and they do it. <laughs> I ask him about marriage. Is it lawful, they ask, for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus is too sharp to get taken in, so he responds with a question. Well, what does the Bible say? What did Moses command you? And they think Moses is on their side, and so they say, well, Moses said he could, uh, that a man could, could write a certificate of dismissal and di to divorce his wife. Jesus responds to them, Moses said that because you're hard-hearted. What's going on here? issue in question has to do with how people in a position of advantage treat those who are vulnerable. So in the ancient world, the men had pretty much free reign, and women had virtually no rights. Often women were considered like property. And in so many ancient religions, men could take a woman, have the relationship as long as he wanted, and when he was done, discard her. So Moses, seeing the hard-heartedness in that just unchecked, self-oriented, I don't care who gets hurt as long as I'm getting my way, says, that's the evidence of a hard heart. You're not going to be able to just discard someone without some formal protections. If this thing comes to an end, you can't just chunk them out on the street. You can't just take advantage of someone who has no rights. So a certificate, formal legal arrangement comes into play to protect the vulnerable party. 
It doesn't meet God's ideal, but God makes allowances for our hard hearts sometimes in order to protect people who are disadvantaged. And Jesus is calling out these Pharisees with their trick question. They don't really care about divorce. That's not what, that's not what they care about. <laughs> they care about dishonoring Jesus and having their way with whoever they want. And Jesus reveals that their hearts are selfish, self-oriented, self-consumed, that they don't care about who they trample on and who they hurt and who they take advantage of. And he's reinforcing that that sort of faithlessness is contrary to a kingdom where greatness is measured by humility, not, amb not ambition. How serious is this? It is serious enough for Jesus to warn his followers about the dangers of hell. How serious is this self-consumed, unchecked, I'm going to have my way no matter what ambition attitude? It is serious enough for Jesus to warn his insider small group followers, his disciples, about the dangers of hell and eternal law. They've just told about how they stopped the one guy from doing ministry in Jesus' name. And Jesus responds, if you put up a stumbling block, a speed bump, a barrier, a hurdle, like a hindrance to ministry, right? a hindrance to the kingdom, if you put up a stumbling block before one of these, one of these little ones who believe in me, here's a guy who believes in me and loves me and is ministering on my behalf. If you put a stop to that sort of thing, it would be better for you for a great millstone to be hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. Because when you go up against people who are doing works of mercy in my name, you demonstrate that you are not following me. And he's not telling that to the heathens. Right? He's not telling that to the Romans. He's not telling that to his he's not telling that to the Pharisees. <laughs> he's not telling it to his opponents. He hasn't gone out and found the sinners and tax collectors and told them this warning about hell. He's telling his followers, the apostles, about this potential danger. And it's such a big deal, he employs hyperbole. It's better to enter into life maimed without your limbs than to go to hell with your hands and your feet. Jesus could employ overemphasis, hyperbole, these over-the-top expressions. The church has never uh, commended lopping off hands and feet. He's not telling you to go do that. He is trying to make a point about the seriousness of this 
this inward heart condition that says, I don't care who gets hurt, I'm going to do what I want to do. He says, if that's where you live, if you think that you have a monopoly on the kingdom, if you think that other people have no contribution, if you think that you can put a stop to fruitful ministry because you're not in control of it, Jesus said, that's a dangerous, that kind of ambition is a dangerous place to be. And he warns them about hell. Now, some of you in your Bibles may have the footnote. You get the little word hell, and there's a footnote, and it says at the footnote that the Greek says Gehenna. You need to know what Gehenna is if you want to really get a sense for what Jesus has in mind here. Gehenna was a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. And uh, you take your trash out, right, Tuesday afternoon or whenever the truck comes, chunk it outside the wall, and there was a perpetual fire, kind of a low-burning, you know how it is when you burn some trash, right? Like kind of low, you don't want to get out of control, it could be bad, but you just got to keep it because there's a lot of trash coming out, so you keep it burning. It does not smell good, and there's a lot of nasty, creepy crawlies hanging out in there eating the, like, the leftovers. The reason that area of the space outside the wall of Jerusalem was used for the trash dump is because several centuries before, a couple of Israel's bad kings used that spot of land to sacrifice their children to pagan gods. Ain't going to build a church there. Let's use it for the dump. That is tainted, profaned space. It's only good for burning garbage. And so Jesus says, you know that spot outside that smells like burning trash um, where the kings sacrifice their children to pagan gods, where the fire never goes out and the worms are chewing on your leftovers that the pigs won't even eat? That's the image of eternal loss. It's bad. Now some folks come to these texts and attempt to make out the eternal loss into something like personal annihilation. So that you don't suffer forever, you just cease to exist. The difficulty with that interpretation of this text, the kind of ceasing to it, like you just you're not conscious, you're not a person, you're not you don't exist. It's over. Like you're not you are no more. Because they find, rightfully so, the idea of eternal suffering distasteful. I find that distasteful too. The issue I have with this text is that seems to mute the really drastic nature of the warning. Like Jesus says, look, whatever's coming is so bad that you would do better to chop off your hands and gouge out your eyes. He's speaking hyperbolically, but you get the point. <laughs> right? Like if, if, if all that awaits for unfaithfulness is non-existence, it's not suffering if you aren't conscious of it, right? There's no real clear penalty if you don't have any sense that anything at all is happening because you don't exist. It's not clear to me how 
denying yourself to the point of, you know, to this level is really an even swap for non-existence. Enjoy your life. Do whatever you want to do. Sin all day. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? Tomorrow we die. And there are no consequences because you don't exist. It's very hard to make sense of the warning if that's the approach we take. And so we need to take just this high level of emphasis that Jesus puts here seriously, not because we glory in someone's eternal destruction, because we, we, we long to keep that from happening. One of the reasons I do what I do, friends, is because I believe that life outside of Jesus is eternal loss. And I don't want that for the most wicked person in the history of the world or any of us or our neighbors or the nations. Again, don't forget that Jesus is not warning pagan, idol-worshipping idolaters. He's, worship, he's warning faithful fellows who have been with him in his small group for several years. Let's take that on board. How serious is it? How serious is it to discover that kingdom greatness is marked by humility, is measured by humility, not ambition, is serious enough for Jesus to start talking about eternal loss. So if that's the attitude he's going after, this, I'm going to have my way no matter who gets hurt, if that's the thing that he's after, what does he want? That's the thing he doesn't want. What does he want? This is the reason I chose to handle this large text in one sermon, because you get this recurrence, recurring appearance of children, and that ties this passage together. Right after Jesus tells them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and a servant of all, he takes a child, puts the child among them, and says, whoever welcomes one like this welcomes me. And then at the end of the passage, people are bringing little children, the disciples, again, we don't have time for kids, put them away, right? Children should be seen and not heard, something like that, right? Just... They can go play somewhere else while the grown-ups have grown-up time. Right? They have nothing to offer, no contribution. There's that attitude again. Shovel them away. We got business to take care of. And Jesus says, let them come. Because Jesus welcomes people who can't do anything for him. You want to be great? You got to serve people who can't do anything for you. And here's the thing, friends. Like little kids who live in the you know, slums outside of Jerusalem in poverty, like they can't do anything for you. <laughs> like maybe if you're in Rome, uh, you know, and the, you know, there's a senator or somebody whose son is up and coming and you kind of make a deal and there's some quid pro quo and, you know, there may be some advantage to that relationship. But, but, but the poor kids hanging outside in Palestine and Judea, kind of where Jesus is hanging out, they got nothing to offer. They have no status. They have no wealth. They have no, like, they, they can't help you out. They're not strong enough to work and, and like, they don't offer anything. You can't use them. And Jesus says, when you welcome people who can do nothing for you, then you're beginning to get an idea of what greatness in the kingdom of God is like. What leadership in the kingdom of God is like. These kids cannot help your ambition. You serve them, you love them, 
you care for them because they are made in the image of God, because they are human beings, because they are people, because they have an inherent dignity made in God's image. You care for them when they have nothing to offer you, you are beginning to understand what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus welcomes people, us, who have nothing to offer him. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our reputation. He doesn't need our influence. He doesn't need our network. He does not need us. But he loves us. There's probably some folks in the room who knows what it feels like, who know what it feels like to be treated the way the disciples and the Pharisees treat people in this text. You've been in a place where somebody didn't treat you like a person. You've been in a place where somebody insisted on getting what they want even though you got hurt. You've been in a place of vulnerability and you felt the pain of being dehumanized. The gospel says Jesus will never treat you like that. Jesus will never treat you like that. He welcomes you. Not because he can get something from you. Only because he loves you. And he calls upon his people to be that kind of people. He calls upon us to love the vulnerable and the outcasts and those who cannot offer anything. Because that's what he offers us with his wounded hands, the marks of the cross, his broken body with his shed blood. Kingdom greatness. It's not about ambition. It's about Christ-like humility. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.